Hey, this episode is brought to you in part by Signature Doors and Windows. Now, on to the show. Well, I mean, I told you the answer to this question earlier, which is I'm a, uh, a lovable goober with lots of hair who uh, likes to draw and, 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 and work in architecture and share that with other people. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. Hey, Bega. Uh, how you doing? Doing okay. Doing okay. A little tired. Yeah, we have uh, both been teaching two high school architecture camps in the last two weeks, uh, one for ACE and one for Architecture in the City, both hosted through CU. And uh, yeah, feel, feeling a little stretched, a little... Uh, <laughs> A little pulled in different directions, huh? Yeah, it's been fun and equally exhausting, mm-hmm. but also fun. This is your really your first teaching experience, it right? It is, yeah. It's like just enough. I don't think I need any more. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of someone who has a lot more, that brings us uh, to our guest today, uh, a very, a very fine teacher and a, a teaching mentor of mine who was uh, the coordinator when I first started teaching at CU. So we have, we have Kevin Hurth here. Woohoo! Long, long time coming. He sh- should have been on a while ago. But uh, this is a guy, uh, very accomplished. So he won a, a lot of uh, awards at uh, University of Virginia for his undergrad and then at Harvard for his grad school. He uh, received... The Architectural League Prize in 2017, a big deal, and then just received one of the few Architect Magazine Progressive Architecture Awards given out this year. Uh, But above all, I'd say he's just a um, he's just a a, a rock within uh, CU Denver's architecture department and in our community as it's it's seen nationally. So, yeah, he's cool. Uh, but this, so uh, this was a pretty unique event. This was way back in the spring, um, but this was a, a live event open to the public, a live recording. It was in in a pretty cool room. Uh, it felt good. It was a good environment environment to be in, but it was a very bad room. It turned out to record a podcast. There was like a cracked window and like wind gets in and police sirens and uh all those things that i care about and becca is rolling her eyes (laughs) at me for um but the audio quality isn't great so sorry but uh this is a a fun conversation with a friend and a colleague that i respect and and a rising voice within our our profession uh nationally so we were able to talk through kind of stuff about his life and then we took questions from the audience made up mostly of students, um, but also uh, the dean was there as well from CU. Nice. Um, Yeah. Cool. I'm excited. So here it is. Enjoy. Hey, so today we have Michael Quinn from Form Kitchens on. Um, Look, you know, we, we all have kitchens. Most all of us want better kitchens. Michael, why, why should we get Form Kitchens? I think what you said was sort of the epiphany for our CEO. We all want better kitchens, right? And he grew up doing it as a family business. And then as an adult, he 
saw the beautiful, stunning kitchens we all see on Pinterest and Instagram and basically tried to put one together himself and just couldn't find that aesthetic at a great price point and wondered why the process was so inefficient and so manual. He thought, well, if I'm seeing these online, why can't I just order them online? And so that's really the idea behind Form Kitchens is not only to design and deliver beautiful, stunning, modern kitchens, but to wrap the whole design process in a really modern context. So we design all online. We've built our own software that powers the experience. And it's all really about streamlining and simplifying high-end design. And then through a direct-to-consumer model, really just making it more affordable and more accessible. Yeah. The great thing is that Michael uh, is here in Denver, so you can reach out to him as well. Uh, and if you're looking for more information, we have a special link for the podcast. You can go to social.formkitchens.com backslash architecting. Thanks for the partnership, Michael. Thanks, Adam. It, really cool what you've created over at Architecting. We're excited to start to be a part of the community. And, and like you said, never hesitate to reach out. Uh, I love grabbing coffee. And you can shoot me a note at michael at formkitchens.com. Perfect. Thanks. Hey, we're happy to be sponsored by Modern in Denver Magazine. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated content on Colorado designers and projects, spreading the gospel of good design within our region. And I love how the goal of Modern in Denver aligns with the goal of this podcast, to better build up and connect the community of Colorado designers. So go buy a copy of the magazine at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Check it out. Thanks for coming, Kevin. To, thanks for coming to your home here. Yeah, yeah, see yeah. You. Thanks for having me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's funny, you were, you were like one of the first people I reached out to, like, it was like emailed a few times for lunch and you never got back to me for a while. And then we finally got lunch. But it's kind of just been a beginning of a pattern where I always reach out to you and then you take a while to get back. And <laughs> no, no. I'm not even busy. <laughs> You're super busy. I am pretty busy. That and, and that's like this nice natural beginning to the podcast and I'm gonna stop it really hard with a super weird question of who are you? Oh, okay. It's like uh, your your neck like hurts from the abrupt uh, transition. Okay, I can be not ready for that. <laughs> so if, if if I gave you two sentences, like a part T sketch, who are you? Okay, all right. Um, well, I mean, I told you the answer to this question earlier, which is I'm a uh, a lovable goober with lots of hair who uh, likes to draw and 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 work in architecture and share that with other people. Nice. Yeah. I think you're, you're like one of the most uh, complete architects I know in, in the sense of identity where I don't know anybody who like dresses more like their drawing style. Oh. <laughs> I think you have, this, you have a very distinct, beautiful drawing style and I've always been impressed by this, this sort of like black grayness that you dress in and, in sort of this refined frumpiness. Yes, uh, thank you. Which is refined like, frumpy. TM. You, you could add that into your <laughs> about. Yeah. Uh, but so where did, where did that come from? Like, uh, where did you where did you grow up? Uh, well, actually, I grew up in the on the East Coast in the South, 
where there's a very kind of homogenous fashion culture for people who are in their youth, I think. And so you either fit into that or bucket altogether. And um, what is that? Is that like, it's like the, the preppy, the blue, sort of, the yeah. pink polos, and the, yeah, and like a yeah. rugby shirt and some khaki pants, and yeah, boat shoes or whatever, which is great. Uh, and you know, I, I think I, I, I learned that I didn't want to be necessarily the way everyone else was was looking, and <laughs> then from there. Uh, wound up adopting it completely when I moved away from the South. Like I, I moved to Boston and where everyone was dressing in like all black, you know, with the sort of black Levi's and the black yeah. t-shirt and, you know, the very complete appearance. And so I left the South and left that kind of like preppy identity uh, behind, but then fully kind of like adopted this like weird, like, hipster prep identity because I didn't want to be wearing all black yeah. or like everyone else. The architect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, but like, but what, what, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of adopt what's around you in some ways. Right. Until yeah. something snaps you into wanting to be something else. Like even when you were in, so you're in Virginia, is that where you yeah, grew up? Like were your parents or someone around you doing something different that made you want to kind of go towards architecture? Um, not really. Um, <clears throat> my parents are both from the Midwest, uh, so they were kind of from outside of the context that I grew in mm. up in as well. And I'll be honest, I, I went into architecture because uh, my middle school art teacher told me I would never be an artist, basically, <laughs> <laughs> and suggested that I try a drafting class in high school <laughs> because my desire to... to to do art was uh, apparently misguided <laughs> in her eyes. Uh, but I think that, honestly, the, the kind of identity of, that I've crafted for myself is in, in a part a sort of attempt to maintain some sense of authenticity for mm. who I am and where it comes from within position of my work. Mm. Um, so, and I, I, I actually think that's like kind of a worldview that I espouse to every corner of my identity in a lot of ways is to sort of adopt this kind of ethical standard for myself that if I'm not doing something that reinforces my project and my identity, mm -hmm. then I'm probably veering away from uh, the core set of values that I set for myself. And really a lot of those things, I mean, we talked about like where I grew up and the kind of upbringing or whatever, they, they don't bear too much on how I view myself today beyond the, the sense that um, it informed my appreciation maybe for like the natural environment uh, and being outside basically. Like, yeah, like where you, where you grew up didn't necessarily <coughs> influence that pro that architectural project. No. But, but, but it got you there. Like, yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm really interested in the idea of the project. Like it's something I struggle with all the time and I will get there, but I think, so sticking with the background a little bit, so you're in Virginia, there's a lot of architecture schools around. How'd you end up at UVA? What was that choice like? That's a good question. And it's kind of a funny one because um, it's not actually where I wanted to go initially. Mm -hmm. um, I was pretty enamored with the, um, the Auburn program. design build program at the time. I had a, worked in an office where someone had gone through that they were really encouraging me to basically get out of Virginia, which mm. I was fully on board with. Um, 
And so I went down there. I, I got into Auburn. Hmm. I was very excited to go there. Uh, I got into their honors program, which, you know, I was an okay student, but not that great. So it felt like a good thing. But um, at the time, my mom was was not well. She got sick hmm. uh, when I was in school. And so uh, it became pretty clear that being closer to home would be good for me, um, even though <clears throat> it's not necessarily what I wanted. And I was actually thinking about this the other day. Like, I, I was the kind of college student who still hung out with his high school friends, I mm-hmm. think, because there were so many of them who went to Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, you know, don't get me wrong. That's an incredible school. It was probably the best university I got into at the same time. I think my perspective in that moment was almost hedging <laughs> also, like, what if architecture doesn't work? I want to be in a school where, like, I can try something else and feel like those avenues would open up. Yeah. Um, it was just happenstance, honestly, that I wound up at a program that was at a really strong moment in the early 2000s uh, in a class with um, some incredibly talented designers who I still, like, talk to monthly and respect their work. So... In that way, it was kind of good fortune. It's so influential, like especially when you go to a, 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 a the state school that you are from, right? Yeah. That you, who you end up with, and how it sets you off in a direction. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the program there still really um, emphasized drawing quite heavily. It was one of the last programs that I think carried that through the curriculum. Um, pretty deep into the studio sequence, even if it was pushing this kind of hybrid methodology that was pretty in vogue at the time. Um, and actually, that while I, I would never teach that way today, <laughs> uh, uh, as he looks out at his students <laughs> that are watching us, uh, it did, it did um, raise an appreciation in myself for seeing drawing as an act, not uh, like almost a performative act as mm-hmm. much as it is a form of representation or an outcome of a process. So, um, yeah, that, that was just like sort of a performative act. Act in what sense? Like, well, like um, a drawing to me is something that has to be authored. Um, so, lines have to be placed on a page at some level, even if it's being translated through a printer or a, you know whatever other device um, screen. Uh, but that you're sort of authoring the content in a more intentional way than, say, filtering or um, uh, collaging or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, I, I always hear that and say that, right? Like, drawing is an act of architecture, right. where the drawing becomes the architecture in some ways. I say that to students, and I know I don't fully understand it myself. Yeah. Uh, but, that, you know, I see it in a way of, okay, if these things are never built, then the architecture is only as good as the drawings that represent it that's in some ways. Yeah. You know, that, that's one take on it. Um, or the other way of like what you're talking about of just that uh, sort of architecture as an intentional uh, yeah. placing of elements to create architecture in the same way that your, inten- your intentionality with drawing, right? Yeah, that, that makes sense. That's kind of more what you're... Yeah, yeah I mean, I think for me... And like the, you know, fundamental act of architecture is drawing. Um, like it's sort of the the thing that we do best, and the thing that, well, in my opinion, and the thing that we um, are trained to do most heavily, and it's sort of the 
ultimate product of our work that gets passed off to someone else who's like paying for it basically mm-hmm. yeah. um, and I, I think that that evaluating yourself through that lens as an architect can be um, valuable even though perhaps our emphasis is more on building at the end of the day um, to, to take pride in the product of your work as something that um, that has a certain format and mm-hmm. has a certain like set of rules uh, that you're operating within uh, yeah. can be kind of fun. And, and ultimately your product is a contract set of documents that you're putting out there. You know, that's what right. you're giving and you're advising on the construction of a building, but you're not building it in, yeah. in most cases, right? Right. <clears throat> now, some people do, but true. <laughs> uh, and actually most of the work I've built have been self-authored at some level, but yeah. <laughs> So, so you were pretty well instilled with that sensibility and that sort of went throughout the school, you think? Did you gain that there or was it sort of a germ of it at UVA? Uh, I think it was, honestly, this is going to sound funny, but it, it was initially for me germinated in um, like these goofy drafting classes that mm-hmm. I took in high school where... We would have like they, they, it was like a such a maybe like a '90s thing, but like they had timed competitions for drafting huh. uh, like a building. So you, we would show up in like the mall on a Wednesday morning, and there'd be like banks of computers everywhere, mm. and they'd say like, "Okay, you have 20 minutes. Like, make the the best plan for a building that you can." <laughs> it was really strange, uh, and so like for me the. That was not necessarily an education in drafting or in architecture so much as it was like in developing a like a twitchy mindset of focus where you extend past the kind of act of placing an individual line but get into this sort of like um, active act that, that that transcends like an individual mm-hmm button yeah. on the keyboard. Do you know what I mean by like, that? There's like 20 minutes to figure out where, the, where yeah. the Chick-fil-A goes. Right, yeah. So, and I've always loved that. I mean, that's the thing that I, I still value the most if I'm working on a project is like putting on headphones and being like, okay, mm-hmm. timer. I have like four hours until it's time to pack up. I'm going to just get in the zone, put on like the same song on repeat. <laughs> It's, <laughs> like, it's 2 really, a.m. I have four hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. I find like Philip Glass's Glassworks mm. is really good for this actually because it's like so repetitive mm. and almost like terrible sounding on mm. some level. Yeah. Like it can be a little shrieky at times. And so like if you put it on, it just becomes this like trance almost mm. where you can just be working and thinking. And, um, the, that's always been, and I think it shows in my work quite a bit actually that like um, there's not a singularity of labor so much as like the accumulation mm-hmm. of vast amounts of labor that then gets put together into something that's almost expository. About. Yeah, and, and a little bit of that like dissonance in a way. Yeah, the sort of repetitive and the screechy, <laughs> yeah. nice, nice screechy. Yeah, 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 yeah. pleasantly screechy, pleasantly screechy, or maybe like intentionally unpleasantly yeah. screechy. Um, so, so you left. I feel like that's always a such an interesting period when you graduate from undergrad from architecture and you've gone through boot camp and then you spit out in the world and 
it's either super hard to keep that sort of momentum going or to figure out what's next. So what was next? Um, well, so I actually worked, I got out of my BS art program, um, which is a four year degree. I worked for uh, a landscape architect in, in Virginia named Greg Bleem. He's an incredible, uh, from the Dan Kiley tradition of modern landscape mm -hmm. architects, uh, uh, designer who's practiced all over the East Coast for years and years now. Um, it was a really attractive position for me because he was working with a lot of architects who I was interested in. Mm -hmm. So I got to kind of float in and out of uh, like maybe three or four dozen projects over two years. Mm -hmm that were being done by like Toshiko Mori or Yoshio Taniguchi or W.G. Clark, like people who were at that moment at least and still continue to be sort of resonant within the East Coast, the Central East Coast um, scene, uh, <clears throat> which was great. Uh, it was a good project management experience as well. Like I spent a lot of time on the phone with contractors and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but I, honestly, the, the greatest byproduct of it was um, spending time with Greg's enormous architecture library, uh, which became for me, like, I'll be honest, I was not a model architectural history student in, in college, <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> uh, but I would sit down with one of his books every day, uh, like say a Baragon book, having very little, if any, knowledge about Baragon to begin with. And I would just spend you know, my lunch break just staring mm -hmm. at a book and then pick another one up. He probably had two or 3,000 books in wow. his library. So for me, that was like almost a second education, starting to evaluate precedent uh, and, and in particular, like a kind of 20th century, um, an understanding of 20th century architectural history that wasn't necessarily emphasized uh, to me previously that began to, to help fill in the mm -hmm. kind of like line of uh, time that we're in, um, which to me is still enormously foundational to, yeah. to working today. So. That's really interesting because I, you know, I saw that on your resume of working, that's almost like the longest place you've worked, right? Yeah. For a landscape architect. Uh -huh. And and the, the sort of choice there and, and what you got from it, you know, uh, that's interesting to think about how you were so adjacent to so much architecture. And I guess figuring out how to integrate in, and then sort of like maybe a little bit of the this, the southern landscape in general, right? Like still. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, honestly, in a practice like Greg's, it was very much about um, detailing, architectural detailing at the kind of um, intermediate to small scale. So like handrails, and fences, and mm. stairs, and walls. Um, that's really where he focuses heavily, which to me, if if I had attempted to think about that before I took that job, I would have probably had a fairly general approach of thinking about like, where's a good stair that I've seen before? Let's try to think about how to do something new. Mm -hmm. um, but working in his office really, um, like we would do full scale one-to-one -one mock-ups and spend a day building out of foam like stairs and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, gave me a different appreciation for working a little more <clears throat> in, in conflict with what I was saying a minute ago about like just being really fast, <laughs> being like almost obnoxiously slow mm. and taking, um, you know, an enormous amount of time to study small moments that, um, that you're studying in a way to try to create something unique. Uh, you know, if you do 
10 stairs a year for 30 years, like Greg probably does, at a certain point, you don't just do the same stair, you'd go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a kind of constant sense of reinvention and exploration within the detail um, that I don't think an architect can always be afforded to take in the same sense that a, a landscape architect operating at his level was able to get into. Mm. When your scope is restricted to just you know, 20 elements right. uh, and you're not worried about assemblies and waterproofing, huh. it changes the kind of focus a little bit. Yeah. For what it's worth, I know nothing about plants. I learned nothing about plants. I would be like, Greg, what do you think about like a fuzzy green thing? He'd be like, okay, Kevin. <laughs> stay, stay in lane. Yeah. Go, back to the <laughs> go, go, go back to the drawing board. So was there a, was there a point where you, you could see yourself staying in that world or, or no. was it always a, there's always a limit to there it? There was always a limit to it. Um, and it was, a for me, uh, it was a great opportunity. I got to work with and be in the room with a lot of different people. And I kind of saw that as uh, a moment where I could have a very diverse training in a short period of time. But that when I stepped on from it, I could carry on the tools that I had learned there, um, which I, I, I think I do. You know, I think yeah. um, architects are not necessarily very good landscape designers <laughs> as we've seen time and again and uh, I like I've actually come to really greatly appreciate that discipline hmm. um, for the the different type of scale that it, it has to work in but yeah. it's not one that I've really thought I would linger in and so then was that a pretty clear path for you to the GSD or to grad it was, school in general? Yeah. yeah so I spent I took two years between my two degree programs um and the second year, really, I basically, I mean, I was working full-time and being a 23-year-old full-time, but then also working on my portfolio every day, basically. Like, I, I did two new projects. Uh, and in some ways, I see that as, like, the, a foundational moment of seeing architecture as not something that's assigned to you, but something that you can interface with and start to assign yourself, in a way, and, yeah. and then contribute to. Um, so, like, in doing a couple of competitions and redoing a project and reworking drawings and getting everything into that. At that time, it was still a print portfolio submission, which is hmm. long gone at this point. But, like, even the act of putting the book together was, like, kind of a month-long project of, like, hand-stitching and things like that. Um, so, uh, that was that was fun, <laughs> but it was all a vehicle to get to graduate school, which was... Um, really where I think, like, my adult life began, probably. <laughs> yeah. And why the GSD? Um, I was just, I, I was completely enamored with and fascinated with the, the design culture there. Um, it was also a, a pretty interesting moment of transition within the program. It was, I was going in at Preston Scott Cohen's first year as mm. chair, and, or maybe his second year, and then um, Wayson, uh, his term as the dean so that it felt like um there was a an establishment of energy there that was going to continue to grow and i was kind of curious to see what that would be like um, was it what you expected when you got there no not at all yeah. <laughs> i mean in some ways cambridge is uh like 
it's more extra than you can imagine <laughs> <laughs> on some level, like the sort of Cambridgeness of it. It's a little bit like Boulder, actually, <laughs> in the sense that you were describing earlier. It's sort of like, it is kind of, in many ways what you expect it to be. It's like part of Boston, but it's also part of this sort of like uh, intelligence culture. Um, the GSD was uh, way more gratifying, actually, than I thought mm-hmm. it would be. Like it, it was a community of people first whereas I, going in i thought it would be kind of a community second or third and a place to kind of individuate work first um, so that was really uh, a nice discovery to to kind of stitch into a, a community that went from not just student to student but also from faculty to students to build a culture which i think they have to do there it's you know cambridge can be a little bit hostile in the winter and um, it's it's a lot, so I think banding together and having a a good community is huddle around important. your trays and uh, yeah, exactly. Well, it's not a great place to be alone, too, <laughs> yeah. so you really want to kind of be in that be in that community. So. Yeah, what what influenced you there most, or who who influenced you there? Who are some of your people? Yeah, I had some really great studios. Um, you know, I I had a studio with. Um, uh, the Grafton Architects, mm. uh, Shelley and Yvonne, oh. was very. Uh, it was before it was. They had just finished their Bocchioni School in Milan, which was, was a big deal for them. Uh, but before they kind of launched into their current trajectory, uh, where they're winning the Pritzker Prize and things like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I loved their methodology and their kind of casual approach to Descrits. Um, hmm. But then more directly, uh, I, I was really lucky to have. Uh, Max Goggin as my thesis mm. advisor, and then um, Toshiko Mori, mm. that was her TA for a short stint and had her for a studio based in Africa, actually, which was uh, kind of a prelude to some of her work in Senegal mm. that uh, was really successful for her. So it was actually, yeah, it was a, I was lucky to have them as teachers, but also kind of mentors I, I still keep in touch with. Toshiko and Mac in particular still. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't know you were with Grafton. Uh, they were at but, Yale not long after. I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, I missed them there. But um, but that sort of them and, and, and Mac, you know, like there's a bit of that, like, yeah, like that sort of dissonance, that like ordered dissonance that we were talking about before. Right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I think that... Um, yeah, order dissonance is a great way of, of thinking of it. Or I'll, I mean, I like to think of um, of it also as sort of like generating order and then intentionally disrupting that mm-hmm. order in some way, or, or like problematizing it. Yeah, um, uh, which you know, Toshiko would make fun of me in studio. She's that way as well. She, I remember her very clearly, like kind of ridicule like poking fun at me for how like rigid I was like it's a box packing project everything is like very efficient and about like putting everything into like a very clean sort of orderly position and she kept on pushing me and pushing me and it wasn't until we actually went to Senegal and I saw how people built there that I realized how um you know rut I was in a way to to be so rigid all the time and uh, so that was a similarly like get out of your own head kind of moment. But. That's interesting because 
you know, you, you coordinated one of the first studios that I taught here mm. and we were doing projects sort of along that line. And I remember you coming up to me and be like, you don't have to make it so rigid. So like I was even more rigid than you were. But, uh, <laughs> so in that same sense of being at UVA and leaving, you get, you get spit out of that nice warm architectural nest at, at Harvard. Then what happens? Uh, so I was stayed in Cambridge. That was at the peak of the economic slide at that point. It was mm -hmm. 2010, like in the middle of winter. Um, so I, I took it, and I was like more than broke. I took out a, a, a what's called a grad plus loan, which is not a very favorable loan to for those of you who are know, just to do my model for my thesis, <laughs> which I also wouldn't recommend. Um, so I took a job um, for a, a former professor um, in in Boston. Actually, I stayed in Boston. My wife uh, was just a. Um, she was moving to Boston to, to move in with me at that point. Um, so we were both kind of scrambling to find work. Um, it was a good, it was a good job. I was a design studio leader. So I had a chance to kind of take on leadership role in, um, you know, crafting projects, you know, directly underneath the principal, but then also did a lot of project architect and project management tasks in particularly in particular on um, uh, a school project, which required a lot of um, like weekly meetings with stakeholders and things like that. Um, so that was kind of trial by fire on standing in a room with a, with a bunch of Boston socialites and Weston, Massachusetts is like the top mm -hmm. 100 wealthiest towns in the country. And then me standing in front of the room with my like, too tight fitting tweed jacket on. <laughs> it was too black. <laughs> trying to yeah, yeah. Trying to convince everyone to build a roundabout they didn't want. <laughs> and so, and where was that at? That was at uh, Jonathan Levy Architects. Huh. And what 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 got you there? Um, the job offer. Yeah, uh, and and just wanting to s to stay in in Boston. Jonathan was a professor of mine and has an interesting practice. Yeah, it's it very, seems like uh, some strong work. I mean, it is. He's very uh, kind of nested within the um, Massachusetts uh, dialect and, yeah. and regional culture. Um, uh, so it was a good, it was a good education. By the, t by the end of it, we were ready to leave Boston. Um, I think going to school in Cambridge is a little different from commuting on the green line to the back bay every day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think by the end of it, we were ready to move on. So we, uh, we, we moved out here, which was, which was great. Why here? Um, well, we, we were like, we had a short list. It was like New York, same back to the Bay area where my wife had lived for a long time. Um, or, um, Colorado, which my wife has a, has a, a her family has a cabin up in the mountains here. So, um, she kind of like dragged me out here on a vacation the summer before <laughs> and we were talking about it and she was like, well, we could live here in this like oasis in the mountains. It's <laughs> like, okay, that, that sounds pretty good. Um, you know, I'd always loved being outside and hadn't really spent enough time in the West, but was always kind of enamored with it. So, um, it was a bit of a hasty decision as 
those things go when you're in your like mid early to mid twenties to just commit and go for it. Um, and I never looked back. It's been uh, great. What was that story you, you you told me like you had twelve interviews in twenty four yeah, hours yeah. or something? <laughs> doing the... Yeah, that was crazy. So I was um we were coming out to meet with with prospective employers and just meet people. I had never been to Denver before, only only like around it from the airport. Uh, and so I also wanted to kind of get to know what the city was like. But we at that point we had already committed, like we were we were moving to Colorado. So I was kind of more or less sight unseen. Like Denver, yes, let's do this. Uh, and so I was there. We I lined up four meetings a day for three days straight, including a review here uh, and a meeting with Matt Shea, who's in the back over there, uh, as well as. Um, uh, and then on the on the fourth day, I had determined that I was going to propose to my wife. Um, <laughs> So it was like a, a little bit crazy, uh, but I was like driving a rental car around Denver, having hour and a half meetings with people, uh, and then like racing across town and meeting with someone else. I actually blew off the uh, 12th <laughs> meeting, which I, I won't name names, but I still feel bad and I've never talked to that person again. <laughs> but they were kind of like, okay, fine. Uh, I spent that day, actually, I was in the Botanic Gardens uh, in the kind of heritage modern gardens around the, the I, I blew off the meeting and sat there and was kind of like, okay, this has been a lot. I guess I'm going to propose tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. And so uh, we went up back up into Evergreen for a picnic and my wife didn't really know what was going on. Uh, and we were sitting down for our picnic. It was in May and uh, a black bear came around the corner. And so I'm already on edge, like very on edge and a little worn out from like, hi, I'm Kenna, nice to meet you. Okay, I gotta go, let's do it again. Uh, and uh, I just freaked out and like yelled at the bear. And, and then, and then on the back around. of the bear, was a little pillow. Yeah. One ring and it came up to you. Yeah, exactly, it was all planned. No, I, I kind of like caught my breath and proposed within like five minutes. <laughs> but we gotta go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we should leave. <laughs> so, so um, out of the out of the eleven, who won? Uh, that was when I, I was I wound up working with Paul Anderson uh, at the time. His company was Indie Architecture, now Independent Architecture. Really, I, I, that's where I wanted to be um, all along. Yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, I wasn't. This is my advice to our, my younger crowd in here or really anyone listening I if you're moving to a new city I would never approach a meeting with someone with the intent of looking for a job but rather yeah. just like meet with them right. so it was just a lot of fun yeah. nice meetings um, but I walked away I came to Denver with a job with Paul um, which was a, a great opportunity for me it was stitching into a practice that had has national and international aspirations and um is really experimenting uh, a, a lot with different forms of practice and forms of putting a project together. And <clears throat> to me, that was like, in some ways, the the next education, <laughs> which was sort of, uh, Paul is uh, uh, really excellent at formulating an approach to practice and seeing what's going on in the world around you and understanding the kind of niche that you can form that other people aren't necessarily doing that might help to kind of push into a new direction. Yeah. Um, he, I mean, I, you know, I was 
constantly um, inspired by the way in which he approached practice, not as sort of a formula to figure out how to, to do the next thing better than the last thing, but almost saying, okay, we came into work yesterday and what we were doing worked, but let's try it again. Um, and that sort of sense of like restless uh, uh, searching uh, wasn't just like a week to week thing, but like really continuous, um, which was great. It's yeah. good. I mean, it fit into my own, um, like kind of uh, machine like <laughs> need to just like constantly be producing. Uh, like we would, we would sit down on the pro a small project, like, Hey, let's look at, you know, an ADU. We would, you know, Jason King, who was the other person in the office and I, he's at uh, Lorcan O'Hurley's office mm -hmm. now, um, would sit down and maybe do like 20, 30, 40 iterations in like a five hour period and like throw them back at each other. And for right, anybody, right, back, for at anyone mall, for, right back at the mall project. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like, right. we would crank music really loud and like, Philip Glass, you'd have to yell like, at each other. No, that was like my like <laughs> grungy phase. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, if it, for anyone who's like tried to come up with a fresh idea after coming up with 20 others at a certain point, you're not even burning out anymore. You're just sort of like grinding and it, it forces a different way of, of evaluating what you've been doing is um, like almost uh, it's a search yeah. uh, that doesn't really have a, a, a correct solution. And so you just keep searching and searching until something comes up usually failing to do something right. Right. <laughs> but, but in a good 40 way. 40 times you have right. three success. And, yeah. 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 Uh, it can be frustrating because in some way it's a little paralyzing to figure out whether you've got the right thing or not. But mm -hmm. um, to me, that's what's, that's what's, it's exciting. Yeah. So. Where the act of critique becomes really important, right? When you have so many. Absolutely. So many options and. Absolutely, critique and um, and I think like a, uh, an absolution of, of ego on some level. Like I, you're not if when you're authoring that much, that constantly, day to day to day to day, over and over again, um, things become disposable in a in a very functional and useful way. Yeah. Where you can kind of say like, oh, I spent three hours on that. That was terrible. Oh, well, let's do the next thing. Uh, whereas I think when you're working on and focusing on the sort of the fallacy of the like masterful idea, the, mm. the notion that you maybe didn't make the right decision can be problematic to your sense of self. <laughs> yeah. and, and so was teaching always a plan or a part of that? Or how did, how, how did that come in? And then how did full-time teaching go into the experience with Paul? Um, honestly, before I got out of, before I was at the GSD, teaching didn't really hold that much appeal for me. I really was pretty dead set on practice as the kind of um, end all be all for what I wanted to do. Uh, it wasn't until I really saw how um, Toshiko and Mac in particular would frame their work through the studio and vice versa, um, and marrying the kind of uh, academia to practice, I really begin to see the the um, incredible leverage and power that you can get from that. Um, where 
you and it's not transactional i think in the sense that you might think like oh the studio i like you guys think about this idea i'm trying to think through in my studio it's more like you're the um, ones doing the 40 ideas <laughs> yeah. and Karen's taking one. no it's not that at all it's more like kind of framing a question and then bringing people together for six months to consider that question critically and poke it from a bunch of different directions the solution in many ways is irrelevant um from that as an outcome for practice so much as a, a way of thinking about how to frame and reframe um, a series of questions that you might have that then can inform a whole body of work. Uh, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, so I wouldn't never describe the marriage between academia and practice as transactional in any way, or at least it shouldn't be, um, so much as like a, a, a interrelated uh, as a, a way of um, building off of uh, very different strengths. Mm -hmm. So, but I found that I find that to be you know especially in my case of trying to straddle both worlds. Right, it's very it's very difficult to kind of have a foot in, in both worlds. And you you made the purposeful choice to go you know full into academia, yeah. well into both, but but at least like you're getting your biggest paycheck from right the school yeah. right yeah. And there, there's people like like Mac or Tushir, like other people that, you know, it's like in some ways they have this built up practice yeah, yeah. And, and they're able to kind of do both. Um, but what, was that a hard choice between saying, okay, I can, I can teach half time and I can teach and I can work at a firm half time versus I need to go yeah. full time into this? Well, I think um, what was and continues to be uh, my love affair with my, with teaching is, um, that design research and, and kind of formulating my the research side of my work and the teaching really around the kind of advancement of design to me has a an optimis an optimism to it that I can fulfill um, almost exponentially to being kind of half in to practice mm -hmm. and half out. Um, I'm afforded the luxury of not having to work on, a, take a project that won't advance that research agenda right. or that creative work. Um, so, and that can be hard at times. Like I might want to work on a, you know, an edition or, mm -hmm. or something that is interesting. But uh, I made the choice to really focus around um, using teaching as a tool to forward a theoretical agenda around architecture as a kind of um, framework and tool for viewing the world, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I, you know, I, I get to draw a lot too, <laughs> uh, which I, I obviously get a lot out of. So Right. And I think, you know, kind of talking about that, talking about this idea of project, you know, um, obviously like in, what was it, 2017, you won the, the Architectural League, uh, New York League Prize, right? And... I remember you showing me your application for that, right? And that was the third third time or something you'd applied. Yeah. Um, but it was so full of of precedent, right? And of really marrying your projects to precedent and 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 drawing. Um, and and it that seemed like a sort of like breakthrough for you in a way of of putting that together. Um, so maybe I'll get to a question. <laughs> um, but the question, the question is, 
tell me how to be a good architect. And no, the question <laughs> is, the, the question is more of, uh, are do you feel like you're able to articulate that your your project within architecture and 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 in a, in a real sense and and especially through some of these like through the the. The, the league prize and some of these things that you had to kind of pull this together? I mean, in some ways, applying to the architectural league prize is an act of framing mm -hmm. to begin with. Uh, uh, and I, did, I think I applied to it actually four times, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, framing and reframing and not winning, <laughs> which uh, I, if you ever want to like feel frustration, spend you know, a month on an award submission and don't get it and then immediately resolve to do it again. <laughs> but I, I actually think that that's, um, that was an early huge benchmark for me in my career that I'll always look back on fondly because um, applying to that prize was uh, an annual, like the month of January essentially exercise of hmm looking at what I had done over the last couple of years and trying to figure out what, how, what, what pulled it all together and what was the project, um, which is an intentional um, act that the league does by putting together prompts every year. It sort of forces you to respond to something, um, maybe asynchronous to what you're typically thinking about. Uh, so, uh, and actually the fourth, the third year, whatever, the last year I did it, I kind of had decided, like, I don't know that I can do this again. I was kind of doing it last minute, too. It was like, okay, like, I'll do this, but I'm only going to give it a week. <laughs> and, I, and I did it, and I, I sent it off to, to the printers, and the print came back um, completely wrong, like, incomplete. Like, I think they maybe even sent the wrong book, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Someone else's, like, travel portfolio from Cancun 2017 or whatever. So that's how you so, won. Yeah. Travel portfolio they loved it. They loved it. <laughs> uh, so then I wound up being like, okay, this is another setback. Like, this is another moment where I can just kind of, like, not do it. Mm -hmm. I spent some time putting together the InDesign file and thinking through it. But then I wound up, you know buying paper, printing and binding it myself and mailing it off. Or I did that in a day, I had like one day to kind of put it all together. And that was the year that I wound up winning, which to me was, it had, that's like a twofold lesson. One is like, never stop trying. Um, uh, like the PA award that I won this year was, I think I looked, I had to look back because I was, I had to pull the receipt for, um, for tax purposes or whatever and it was I think the 17th time I applied oh, or nice. the 12th time or something it was some obscene number of times uh, but you just I just kept I resolved in that moment when I did win that my instinct was correct that you can't lose um, if you keep trying yeah. you're not you haven't lost if you keep trying huh. and if you keep trying you can increase your chances of, of winning yeah uh, and if nothing else it's just especially for something like an award, a good excuse to continue to think through what you were trying to do with something and, and re rewrite on it and rework it. So um, then the other lesson there, I think, is um, that sometimes doing something really fast, like I was, you know, like designing a stair for, for three days <laughs> is one way to do slow. There are other ways to work slowly, but 
sometimes it, you just need to say, I have four hours. I told my students this the other day, actually, because they were like, we have 20 drawings to do in three days. <laughs> I was, you know, at some point you also have to be able to say like, I'm going to give this an hour and I'm going to give it my best hour that I can give yeah. it. But when that's over, it's done. And I'm going to just let that be what it is. And I'm going to tell my brain I'm giving it a half hour. It yeah, actually yeah, gets yeah. an hour because it's going right. to take yeah, twice yeah, yeah. as long. But you tell yourself you're going to give it a half hour. You know it's going to take two hours. So you give yourself four. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think on that point, two things. You know, the, the one, it's, that's one reason I really love this podcast is because it's so easy to see a glossy image or an award or something and say, man, that guy's got to put together that it just, it all works out for them. Right. Yeah. But to say, no, I played for 17 times, you know, yeah. and like I applied for jobs for a full year and got three interviews, you mm -hmm. know, and it's like, it, it's always a struggle. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be. And I think that on the other point of when you're saying, okay, I only give myself an hour or um, doing things fast. I've also seen, the way that you work is like can be excruciatingly purposely slow and uh, like manual in a weird way. Like I, 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 what was it? The monument project yeah. where it's thousands of bricks and you move them by hand digitally each right. brick. And, and I was like, you can, you can make a script for that or you can make something, right? But it's for you, it was that act or or your very uh, distinct drawing style, right? It's, yeah. it's not the easiest way. And I've seen you make your your stipple backgrounds that take three hours of stippling and then you're scanning it over and blah, blah, blah. You yeah. know, that's, that's also pretty fundamental to the way you work too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think it's in some ways kind of dumb that I do things that way, but... Like the script thing is a good example, um, especially coming out of the 2000s and even the last decade where developing a tool to do the work for you became very fashionable, I think. Um, I saw that as both not the kind of work that I enjoyed doing. Like I could spend days and days developing a script to do the work for me, but actually the there's a kind of inherent inflexibility to working with like a, a digital workflow that automates the outcome for you that runs completely counter to my own like predilection towards imperfection yeah. and like some mm -hmm. of the glitch that starts to occur like i'm not master rhino modeler by any means and when i put say that monument model together or um i continue to do work like that where you're moving like every stick or every brick um I find that it's worth, it's probably doesn't take as long as writing a, an effective script to do the work to begin with, <laughs> but that there's also like an element of discovery um, in having to do it manually where I think that like a good example is the mother-in-law house, the mm -hmm. sort of smokestack mm -hmm. tower ADU that I did a few years ago, uh, where there are like eight or 10 models of that with different corner conditions articulated. Right. Um, so they're like that model, the one that's like rendered and drawn took, you know, a week, but there's probably two or three months worth of other mm -hmm. models floating in my, my Dropbox server somewhere. Uh, and it's a sort of like consideration of small moments, like the way three or four, um, whites of brick come together, uh, in different courses, um, that slowness that's zoomed in on a specific detail 
that then gets extrapolated through the kind of time that has to go into putting it together. Um, I just find that I, I guess it comes out of my biography a little bit, but I appreciate that kind of granular detail and then seeing the kind of outcome of the accumulated labor, labor of, of putting that all together um, is not something that you can easily automate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and then maybe people misunderstand that. I'm actually kind of into that, that someone might be like, oh, wow, you like, that's awesome. either like, wow, that's a really good Photoshop filter to make that brick right. look like that or that block or maybe, oh, that's like a uh, really nifty Python script that they, he had to do to do that. Like, I, I kind of like the ambiguity of someone thinking that like I did something in an hour when it actually took me like 40. <laughs> uh, but you're, then at the same time, you're not I'm dealing like, with billable hours. Yeah, I, can yeah, yeah. See, I can see. Yeah. Uh, I'm billing I'm, myself. In my head, the billable hours are just tick, 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 I do tick. actually use like a timekeeping yeah. app that goes back to practice. It's, it's like humorous sometimes. Yeah. Like Photoshop collaging, 23 hours. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> but I don't know. That's, that's, there's, I love that. That's like, I, 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 I glean joy from making something every day. And actually, like, I think that the longer it takes, the greater the accumulated value something takes on. Um, I was even joking with a couple of uh, my students who were in the room the other day about, like, line, like thinking about a drawing as how many lines are within a square inch. Mm. And they were like, oh, wow, I'm going to just, like, throw a bunch of trees in there. <laughs> Yeah, like to me, there's like that. That's a real value of seeing like, um, uh, what's the accumulated time that was put into something, and, and are you doing it in a way that you can really is legible and you can register? Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, you have a very distinctive graphic style, and I've sort of seen it. I feel like develop where in the beginning, you know, it's made up of all these elements. I don't know where for you that style comes from, but uh, in the beginning, it seemed, it, I was kind of like, I don't know if I like this because it's, it, you can never get that crispness, you mm-hmm. know, like when you want the fidelity, right? it's hard to get it. I've seen recently, like you've, you've figured out sort of how to do that a mm-hmm. little better. Um, so the question is, where did it come from and how, how do you see it evolving? Like, do you see it, it, it sort of hand, uh, handcuffing you in a way or or how, how does that evolve i've actually i've been thinking about that a lot recently um because well for one reason because of my own inherent constant restlessness right like um if something becomes easy to do <laughs> that to me is a signal that i need to do it differently <laughs> like i need to harder. come up with yeah. A, yeah i need to come up with like a new way that is now that's no longer rote, I I'm, guess. I'm sleeping too much. Yeah. What, what's wrong here? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, a lot of the early drawings that you're talking about um, were coming out of a fascination with um, drawing in particular. Like, I think over the last 10 years, 5, 10 years, there's been a, like, strong drift away from rendering in general towards model making or collage. Um, uh, and... Um, I saw that as an opportunity to try something that maybe wasn't as like hip as what you see as a trend, but um, to like re-embrace drawing as a fundamental act that has to negotiate 
the image and the kind of rendered form. Um, so I'm trying to carve out my own like little world within representations that reappraises the drawing um, and like forwards that as opposed to the model or the, the collage or the Photoshop kind yeah. of montage or whatever. Um, and like I was indicating that that's kind of started to get, I like, I have a few workflows mm -hmm. that they take a long time, but they're like, I want to do something different. And so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually working on like expanding the scale of the drawings to be like, you know, eight feet by eight feet, almost like mm -hmm. um, mosaic scale, uh, such that the drawings, the resolution of the drawings has to jump like tenfold from what I've been working at, mm. which would have been like at a, you know, maybe three by three or two by two format, um, which is taxing. Like I have a computer that has to work very Smoking. hard and it's a good computer, but um, that means it's the, the right work is happening, right? Like mm. if it takes me uh, an hour for my like really nice workstation to think through one command to like figure out how to trim one set of lines, then I know like I'm on the right track. <laughs> um, so yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of trying to lean further into the drawing realm than I have been for the last couple of years, which um, we'll see how it goes. It's like one of my, my summer projects nice. that I'm working on. Well, we're coming up, up about on an hour here and we have, we have a good group of students and, and other people, mostly Kevin's students here, that he uh, required them to come. I mean, he invited them to come. Uh, I told them they could work on their studio projects. <laughs> That's true. They're, they're all they sat here. Uh, is there, is there any, you've got Kevin here on record. Is there any questions you've been dying to ask him? Any um, nail him down on something? Anybody? Like I said, I can edit out this pause. Yeah, pot, so. <laughs> yeah I'm like a... uh, You mentioned getting out of your own head, and I'm I'm curious if there's any recommendations you have for for actually doing that or getting out of your own way. Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I tend I spend a lot of time failing, to be honest, and like being able to see that failure and set it aside is I think an effective way to do it. Um, more directly though, um, I just try to have multiple pursuits happening at once uh, is the most direct answer. Um, like I don't, I don't think I could work on one thing on one project for long periods of time. I need like four or five or six things that I can pick up and put down. Um, so my, my best method is to, to literally set whatever you've been working on aside and pick something else up, um, even if it's like crocheting or something. <laughs> but I mean, for me, like right now, for instance, I'm working on a physical model that requires a lot of cleanup. So I'm like scrubbing it with sandpaper and playing with it. Um, but then I'm working on a series of drawings and working on a model for a, pro a digital model for a project that I'm designing. And, um, I just try to cycle through them as much as I can. Does that help a yeah. little bit? Yeah. yeah. Definitely come back to it though, right? Yes, always come always back. Come back. Uh, sometimes an hour later, like I, I usually know when it's time to go back when I have a, a feel an itch that I haven't looked at it for a while. Like, when you're tired of the thing you're working yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a cycle of constant exhaustion. You come back to no. it for the 17th time, <laughs> yeah. many notes, yeah. yeah. Right. 
I also take a lot of walks, like as a lot more more or less uh, disciplinary uh, approach. Um, like I, I do a nice walk down town and then up the Cherry Creek bike path. It's like a hmm. you don't see a lot of architecture students down there. It's like nice and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but that, you know, that's that's my my method. So loud music helps. Does anybody else want to get out of their seats and walk up here for a question? I guess, and I don't really know how to articulate it, so maybe we can just talk it out, but um, I guess first question, you started the conversation talking about your interest in Rural Studio or at Auburn, um, and I'm curious if you've ever been able to like come full circle to that interest in design build um, and like... Yeah. That's, that's, I've never thought of that, actually. It was in my mind, it was like, well, I'm not going to Auburn. I guess I'm going to Virginia. And then I sort of jumped into that. Um, but if I reflect on it, a lot of the impulses that drew me to um, a design-build program when I was 18 may persist today, which is a strong desire to see something enter the world uh, and to have a kind of one-person-to-object person relationship with that that I think can be difficult as, um, as a straight architect at times. Um, so recently, like I fabricated a, a mock-up for a, a project that's still sitting <laughs> on, on campus uh, that it took a few months of wrestling with, but I got a lot of gratification from um, assembling it, experimenting with it, um, and then seeing it kind of manifest. Um, which, so, which sort of resulted in your 17th the, time with the, the PA architecture winning that. I mean, that's right. right. Yeah. I mean, 100%. That's a mock-up for that project um, that I took on myself to do. The client didn't ask me to do it. They were kind of dubious about the, the concept for the project, but I was dead set on, on proving that it would work. So that was like a proof of concept um, that I think... Um, no one asked me to do, but that was fundamental to proving the project could work and can work um, and will work. And so um, that was that was great. That was like me just out in the annex with um, an impact driver and a table saw, like screwing around for six months. Um, much faster was would it maybe be the um, History Colorado Museum exhibit that um, I put together with the help of. Um, uh, Mo, who's in the room, along with Ileana Ramirez and a handful of other students, Emmanuel Sklan. Um, and in that case, um, it was very fast. And so building it became about as much logistics management as about craft or lack thereof. <laughs> sort of like making something that accepted uh, a roughness. Um, and, I, you know, I think that putting that into the world was um, hot and sweaty work that I would never take back because of the kind of um, presence that it had and impact that it can have. So yeah, 100%, um, I continue to come back to building uh, as a kind of crucible act that still scratches the same itch that I think we're talking about with drawing where you're and much more directly so, accumulating material through labor into something that 
has a kind of tangible expression of that. Yeah. Now, you, you had two questions, right? Yeah, you said one. one. Oh, yeah. So the other is sort of like, do you have any advice for students who, I think this sort of goes back to the conversation of state schools a little bit and the fact that you went to the GSD. Do you have advice for students who maybe are at UCD who have sort of a desire to be involved within the uh, design and theory discussion uh, that maybe you would get more heavily at uh, a school like Yale or you know, I, I will be honest with you. Um, I don't identify the history theory curriculum that I um, consumed at the GSD as being even remotely <laughs> contributory to my own practice today. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I would say that to some of those people, like, in a conversation to their face, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, you're all listening right now. Everyone. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. This is <laughs> Eve Blau, if you're listening, I loved your class on phenomenal and literal transparency. However, I don't think about it in relation to my work right now. However, <laughs> to your face. I will. Uh, no, but I, so uh, in a lot of ways, and I think the way they do their history theory curriculum at the GSD is informative of a mentality that I would recommend, which is to not think that going into school is teaching you knowledge, but rather teaching you a way of, um, of absorbing knowledge and consuming knowledge, um, which you can get almost in any class. Um, uh, like for instance, their history theory sequence doesn't run, doesn't try to be comprehensive. They will do like a six month sequence on one, one work, for instance, and you just are like, okay, we've talked about Jim Sterling's <laughs> dorms for like three weeks. Can we move on? But like a, a, um, the CU Denver history theory sequence curriculum at large is really deliberately structured to teach you the tools to become an independent uh, thinker in a way that you may not get at other places. It's an incredible opportunity here to kind of formulate your own voice. Um, and feel that there's a sense of independence to do that. Whereas I think at other programs there might be, um, <clears throat> there's a sort of, uh, I'm making a hand gesture and I'm not sure what, <laughs> how to verbalize. There's a sort of like. It's uh, a, like a swooping. It's a swooping, under, swooping under gesture. Hand, yeah. Like <clears throat> there's a freedom to not just the school, but also the environment in Denver and in Colorado that I think is embracing entrepreneurialism and kind of, um, individualism that I think is an incredible opportunity. To, I'm, I'm taking advantage of it right now just to be in this community doing my own thing is unique, right? <laughs> uh, so that would be my advice really to all of you guys is to use like, like a sponge, squeeze every drop you can out of the place with the intent of not trying to learn the way someone else, not like you don't want to learn the Kevin project. You want to maybe figure out how I made my project but then make your own and really like kind of use the resources this place has which are pretty considerable yeah to do that. i mean i think it's e it's easy to say okay uh that place has a name and that has a prestige to it they must know the answers right yeah and i think you get to the, some of those places and you're like well they're they don't know the answers as much as i do or or anyone you know and, and, and maybe there's certain resources or or uh or people that are there but i think like in the way that you maybe learned a lot of your your history and theory through a 
a library from a landscape architect. Right. Like it's about grasping onto resources and the, and and especially with the internet, right, where everything's sort of accessible. Of trying to plug yourself into as many to the nooks that you're interested in pursuing. I think you know, and it, and, it, and I do think it is a little bit more difficult here where there's not as many architecture schools around, um, but we can still sort of access those more dense areas, you know? Yeah, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about actually in the last few months. It's like, because we do have an incredible resource in Denver, namely the kind of practice community and how diverse the people working within it are. We think of the Den CU Denver kind of pool as being uh, one thing, but then there's like the, the there's a there's a larger community in Denver that come from all over the place, and uh, this is an incredible like Adam's podcast is an incredible resource to tap into that um, body of thought in a way. Um, I, honestly, I've been like thinking about like how can I rip off Adam's idea but like do it differently enough that <laughs> I do it better but with more uh, time, no, like, spend more time. Uh, yeah, there's that. I think that there are plenty of avenues to continue to try to like reach out to people. And actually one thing I love about Denver that I don't find to be true in other cities that I've tried, um, in is that you can write someone email, say, Hey, can I get coffee with you? And maybe seven out of 10 times they'll get back to you mm -hmm. and get coffee with you and, and want to know your story and spend that time. Um, I think it comes with being in the Midwest and being in the mountains that we're so far from a lot of other places. Just like you're interested in reaching out to find out what other people are doing, other people are also kind of interested to engage with you. Um, yeah. I was pretty surprised when I sent my like 18 emails that 12 people got back to me when I moved yeah. here. But, and a lot of them have been on this podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I still email Joe Montalbano oh, every yeah. once in a while. I met with him. He was like the second person. I was still fresh. And so I met with him early. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I did the same. I mean, yeah. I think that's a good a piece of advice of just not trying to get jobs, but trying to make connections and make friends and mentors. And uh, it mostly works. Well, we have a question from the Dean. So Kevin, we've heard a lot about what brought you here to today, but we haven't heard about the future. Where am I going? Yes, ideally, could you project into the future mm -hmm. what you'd want to be doing, whether it's teaching, research, practice, ripping off Adam's podcast, mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> making another one. Making a better one, yeah. Whatever. That's great. Thanks. Thank you, Nan. Um, in many ways, I feel like the path that I set off on in 2016 when I started on the full-time faculty here is still very much incomplete. Like I have a lot of desire to continue the projects that I'm working on, which is really resolving the Colorado context, um, determining what it really is, uh, and, and reflecting on it through design work um, uh, and through drawing. Um, I am working on a a book right now um, around drawing uh, that um, examines context as a kind of framework. Um, 
And of course, the, no, me being me, I actually have three book projects, not one that I'm working on. So one of them will go, and the other two I'll work on forever. But um, one's the Cancun vacation book. Yes, one other, will just yeah. be a travelogue of yeah. some stranger from Blurb. Uh, <laughs> um, um, so you know, I, I'm looking forward to writing more uh, in the next year or so uh, than I have been in the last couple of years. Um, but then um, continuing to frame creative practice and design practice through my teaching here is uh, just a passion that I can't can't wait to continue working through. Um, so. More of the same, but better. <laughs> Always better. Is that what your new podcast is going to be called? Yeah, More yeah, of the yeah. same, but better. <laughs> I can't stop, so I might as well keep going. I mean, it's the same with my pedagogy to give um, the students an idea. Like, I think it's pretty common to like run a studio maybe three times. I, re- I recreate a new studio every semester, like from the ground up. And I just I can't stop, and I think I never will. And I think that's that's fun. So. Um, I'm in a, I was thinking about it this morning because Adam sent me some like pre-prepared, like I might ask you this if I need to, <laughs> questions like, who are you? Where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> and I haven't asked a single one of those I questions. I know, just thank, thank you for that because yeah. I didn't like any of my answers. <laughs> or I didn't like, you know, when you, when you get those pre-written questions, you like over-answer them on some right. level. <laughs> um, but for me, it, it, the answer to where are you in the future really is like continuing to grow in this community, which I've grown to love so much in CU, Denver, and Colorado, uh, and continuing to kind of like draw out my own creative practice, literally and figuratively into this place and um, continue to, to, to help it grow. Yeah. Um, one thing that I'd love to do more of is um, engage with some of the practice community around drawings and things like that that I know they're they're doing and it's sometimes hard to permeate to break that kind of uh, barrier from uh, one office to another but I know like I'm saying it all it really takes is an email so <laughs> um, that'd be fun yeah well thanks you know I, I just appreciate your presence here in in the school and and as a especially early on teaching as a mentor and, and uh, working through and, and just that, that energy and drive and passion that you're bringing to the Colorado community. And so thanks for sticking around and for being here and looking forward to hearing your podcast. Yeah. So, thank thanks. you. Adam. <laughs> thank you. I wanted to, yeah. before we break, I want to just want to, to, to just reflect on what a great friend you've been to me in Denver as mm-hmm. well. Uh, it's been fun seeing uh, your, your growth continue to, Thank you. He really prepared that one. Yeah, yeah. that was a good one. Great closing <laughs> remarks. <laughs> thanks, Adam. Well, thanks, thanks, and thanks to everybody who's here in person uh, for this first live live interview. So, thanks. You can visit architecting.com. That's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting.